0: Christmas seasons. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13 today, but I want to, before I read God's Word, let's seek His blessing. Lord our God, we love Your Word because Your words are the words of life. There is nowhere else we can go to find what our souls desperately crave. Father, we forget that sometimes, and we think that man can live by bread alone. Father, many of us feasted together this morning over breakfast. We know how good it is to fill our bellies. Father, I pray that we would take the same joy for our souls to be nourished by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look together. John chapter 1, starting at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of uh, the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, I think aside from preaching the gospel, one of the sweet privileges of being a pastor is when I get to find out that a couple in our congregation is expecting a little one. And I I struggle with that because sometimes I know a couple weeks early before the rest of the congregation does. And I'm afraid with every word that I'm gonna say something that I shouldn't. But last week we had the tremendous privilege of hearing The announcement of Ben and Rachel Breitbach that they have a little one and uh, on the way and we're overjoyed with them. I think the best part, this is going to be probably one of my favorite moments in all of my time as a pastor here at First Scots. was right after that announcement was made, a scream came from within the congregation of pure and utter joy. I love being part of a church body that loves each other and rejoices with each other. It was a great moment if you were to multiply that joy times a few billion, that would still be a weak glimpse into the rejoicing that took place in heaven at the birth of Christ. If we had read Luke's gospel, we would have seen that all of heaven couldn't contain the joy of the angels who burst forth to the shepherds proclaiming good news of great joy. If we had read uh, Matthew's gospel, we would have seen how even the stars in the sky radiated forth with the glory of, of the supernatural light of Christ. The first 18 verses of John's gospel, it's, it's, it's historically known as the prologue of John's gospel, but if we were to put it in its most basic terms, we could say it's God's birth announcement of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see that even more clearly a week from today when we look at verse 14 where we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the entirety of this passage is really a celebration that the Son of God has come into the world. But there's a little bit different tone in this birth announcement than most. You know, John tells us in this passage today that this child came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Or you think about how Mary and Joseph took the Lord Jesus to the temple, and they met Simeon, and Simeon there said in Luke chapter 2, 34 and 35, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. He even tells Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, this, this, this child's life is not going to be easy this child in whom all heaven rejoiced, the world would soon reject. So, why come into the world in the first place? I dare say that none of us would would choose to have children if, if, if we knew that such a future awaited them as what awaited the Lord Jesus. Verse 12 tells us, look there, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, yes, some, many will reject him, many will shun him, but some will receive him, and to those he will give the right to become children of God. Now, you might be thinking, depending on your theological background, wait a second, aren't all people children of God? Well, in the sense that God is the creator of all, yes. In fact, that wouldn't just be true of, of humankind, it would be true of all creation. So, he would be the father to insects and to animals and fish and birds and, and everything else in terms of their createdness, and he would be their father in that sense. But there has to be more going on here for John to say to those, and of course implicit in that is, and only to those who did receive him, who believed He gave the right to become children of God. And here's what's going on there. I want you to understand this because if you miss this, you really miss the great news of this passage. God gave us as humankind a special capacity to know him and to, as we often say, bear his image. His image is upon us. There is something about humanity that is unique. So, God, He created all of it. All of it is a reflection of His glory to some degree or another, but He made humankind special as the pinnacle of creation, and because it is His intent to know us intimately. It was His intent, His design, that that there would be a uniqueness of relationship that God would have with with humankind that He has with no other aspect of uh, of the creation. And so, His design was that he would relate to humanity differently than he relates to the bugs, to the birds, to the cats, to the dogs. It's to be unique in how God related to us. But when sin came into the world, things changed radically and our hearts became oriented against God. We are. If if you're familiar with your Old Testament, we'll get there. I don't know. In a few months, in our Sunday evening study through the life of David, that I preach uh, on rare occasions, we're we're like David's son Absalom. Absalom was King David's son, but he rebelled against his father and led a coup to try to dethrone him. That's really the natural state of man. That's what sin is. It's not an oopsie. It's not a mistake. It's not something we do because we don't know better. Sin is rebellion against God. God is the king. He's the creator. And so when we go against his created order, when we do that which we should not do, we are rebelling against him. We're just like Absalom rebelling against his father, leaving his father's home in a sense, turning his back upon it. You know, we do it so often we think it's normal. We laugh at sin. God never laughs at sin. It is never normal in the eyes of God, but it's normal in our eyes because sin has so affected us. Look with me at Ephesians 2 for a moment. I want you to see how our status, what our status is because of sin, what our status is before God. Ephesians 2, we'll start at verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Scripture teaches us that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. We were made to love and serve the Lord our God, just as you heard that call to worship earlier. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might. But you know how hard that is. Even since you heard that call to worship half an hour ago, how many times has your mind wandered to things that were not full of love to God? Sin is just so easy, isn't it? We were made to love and serve God, but because of sin, we don't do it. And that could have been the end of the story, that God would have written us off and been completely done with humanity. I'll tell you, I'm so glad I wasn't God, because if I had, I would be totally done with us. But God was not done. That's the background of this birth announcement that we see in John's gospel. And it wasn't merely Jesus' birth announcement that's being proclaimed here. It's the announcement that through Christ, through faith in Christ, many sons and daughters would be brought into the family of God. John Chrysostom, probably the most famous preacher in the first couple hundred years of the church, said it this way, the Son of God became man so that men might become children of God. See, this isn't just the birth announcement of Jesus. It's the birth announcement of all believers who would ever live. It's the new birth announcement. If ever a birth announcement deserved a loud shout from our congregation, it is this one right here because this is the announcement that God saves sinners and brings brings us into his family. I want you to look deeper today. We're going to dive into this text and try to understand why these verses should cause us great joy, and I want to tell you in full transparency, the first two points really aren't going to seem that joyful, because we have to get the bad news for the good news to mean anything. We have to lay that groundwork before the good news becomes great news to us. Those three points, you'll find them in your bulletin, the unseen light in verses six to eight the unwelcome visitor in 9 through 11, and then the unimaginable gift in 12 and 13. So, let's look first at the unseen light. Our Old Testament reading just a few minutes ago promised that God would send light into the darkness of our sin-blackened world. This was one of the great and most famous Old Testament promises, but it was one among many as we trace those promises throughout Scripture, we understand that this promised one, this light, would be born of a virgin. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be born at Bethlehem. He would have someone come before Him as a forerunner to prepare the way for Him. He would be innocent and yet suffer as a criminal. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, Each of these prophecies narrowed down the probability of who this person could be. Now, on their own, a lot of those might be no big deal. Many boys came from Bethlehem. Many of them probably were of the line of Judah. How many of them would come from a virgin, suffer innocently, die, and be buried in a rich man's tomb? You know, the the Old Testament prophesied dozens of things about the Lord Jesus, all of which were fulfilled in him. There's a mathematician, I am not a mathematician, but he came up with the probability of this, that all of these prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in one person. And he said it's about one in ten to the 128th power. You would have a better chance statistically, of being struck by lightning 10 times in your life than for just one person to fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. But what's amazing, and we see this as we study through all the Gospels, is how many people could stand face-to-face with Jesus Christ and not recognize that they were standing before God himself. They didn't understand that they were standing before the one who fulfilled these prophecies. That seems to be part of what John's talking about here in verse 6. I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus had a forerunner, someone who went before him to make the way for him. This was common for kings in those days to have a forerunner that would go before them, make sure the path is clear, make sure that it's safe, make sure that everyone knows the king is coming, and so on. Well, that job belonged to John the Baptist, and don't confuse that. John the Baptist is not the same John that wrote the gospel. That's a different John. John the Baptist was a fascinating character. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey and wore clothing made out of camel's hair. He preached hard messages about broods of vipers and the need of repentance. Uh, But the main thing we need to know about John the Baptist is that his job was to point to the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 7. He, speaking of John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That word witness is a legal term, somebody who is testifying about what they have seen. Interestingly, and this is just for you to tuck away in your mind, that word witness comes from the Greek word martyrios, martyr. How did a witness eventually become known as a martyr? Because in the first century, to identify yourself with the Lord Jesus was essentially to sign up for persecution and death. That was the the case of John the Baptist. He was martyred for the sake of his cousin according to the flesh, Jesus Christ. His job at every turn was to draw attention to Jesus. Look at verse eight. He was not the light but came witness, uh, came to bear witness about the light. I just want you to think about this for a second. If Jesus is that light who is so prophesied and so promised in Scripture, why did he need a forerunner? Why didn't everyone just see it themselves? Why could people stand face to face with Christ and not recognize that they were standing before the God of the universe, the God who made them? I Me, mean, A.W. Pink is really helpful here. He says, when the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones that are unconscious of that fact? The, who, who needs to be told that the sun is shining? the blind do. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness to the light. It testifies against us of our own fallen condition that God could stand before us and we not see him. You know, that explains verse 9. Look there with me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So, the true light distinguishes Jesus from John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a reflection of the light. He wasn't the true light. He was a mere candle compared with the shining brilliance of Jesus Christ. In terms of light, the Lord Jesus is completely unique. We saw that last week back in verse four. Look there, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Now, sometimes we can speak inspirationally to each other and say, oh, you're such a light to me. That's not what it's talking about here. Jesus is saying that this light in Jesus Christ is the light of God himself. Now, we've already noted several times in this study that there are a lot of connections between John 1 and Genesis 1. Think back to Genesis 1. All the way back in the very creation, God has taken the nothingness and created everything from it. And on the very first day of creation, you remember what God said, let there be light. And, And there was light. Now, if you keep reading through Genesis, you notice that it wasn't day, till day four that the sun was created. Well, how could there be light without a sun? Scientists and, and Bible scholars have tried to come up with all sorts of explanations for this, most of which simply sort of turn Genesis into poetry. But there's no reason to do that. What was the light that shone so brilliantly on the first day of creation if the sun wasn't created till the fourth? It was the light of Jesus himself. It was the brilliance of the glory of Christ shining throughout the world, throughout the universe. This Christ is the power and the wisdom that is behind creation. He is the one who has so ordered the world with wisdom and power that the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 could say every one of us ought to be able to look at the world and recognize this Jesus. And he goes on to say we don't and therefore We are without excuse. It's not just those who have the Bible and have rejected the gospel message that are without excuse. John is saying, I mean, Paul is saying there, just to look into the world, how rain falls and it nourishes crops, which then feed us. That must take a brilliant designer to do it. We ought to glorify that designer, but we don't. That's our natural disposition is to be blind towards the light. It's an unseen light. This is actually, I think, something that's in the background that John has been answering. John is writing towards the end of the first century. He's the last of the gospel writers. This is one of the last New Testament books written in all likelihood. One of the constant criticisms of Christianity in the first century was, well, if Jesus was truly the Son of God and if he really fulfilled all those prophecies, why did so many of the learned Jews not believe a really good question, isn't it? Why did so many people reject Him if He really was the one that they could look at and say, oh yeah, He matches this prophecy. Oh yeah, He matches this prophecy. So so why did they reject Him? Why was the light unseen? Look with me at John 3 for a moment. Jesus is going to explain this to us. Look at verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Jesus is saying here, in a sense, sinful men don't want to run to the light any more than thieves want to run to policemen. It's, it's like when there's a piece of wood out on the ground and it's been sitting there for a while and you flip it over and all these little creatures that love darkness just go scurrying away because out of fear. John's saying that's exactly why people reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they don't want to see that. They don't want to see His holiness and they don't want their own unholiness exposed by Him. Have you ever noticed that's often the attitude of atheism? Atheism essentially, this is frequently what you hear, there is no God and I hate him. There is no God and I hate this God that I say doesn't exist. Here's where that comes from. Not some intellectual evolution that that has risen you above thinking that there's a God. Where that comes from is the idea that if there is a God, then I have to give account for everything in my life. I have to give account for how I've lived. I have to give account for what I've done. If there is a God, I'm not Him. That's really our core problem. If there is a God, that means I'm not Him. You know, even in idolatry, when we make idols, when we make false gods, we love that because if I make the false God that I worship, then who's really God? I am. And so, there is something naturally in us opposed to seeing this God, because if there is such a God, then I have to give account to Him. So, I would rather cover my eyes and pretend He doesn't exist. Stephen Hawking, famous atheist, a number of years, years ago, made the statement, God is just a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. Well, there's a, a famous Oxford professor who's a believer, John Lennox. He replied, atheism is just a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. And that's exactly right. It's not that we cannot see, it's that we do not want to. And that's the problem going on here. Why didn't people receive Jesus? Because they didn't want to. They stood face to face with him. It wasn't a matter of ignorance, it was a matter of opposition. That's the first thing, the unseen light. The second thing is going to go right along these lines, the unwelcome visitor. Look at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. John, that's just stunning, isn't it? We think of Jesus in his, in his humiliation at his birth, born uh, in a cattle stall or whatever it was. He was born nursing from his mother's breast. Uh, this whole world and all the galaxies and all the galaxies that we don't even know about, all the heavens, all the angels, all the heavenly hosts, that occupy heaven, it was all made through him. And yet, he came into the world. The creator stepped into the creation. Listen to how St. Augustine said it 1,700 years ago. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. The Creator came to the people, thousands of years of prophecy fulfilled. Men should have flocked to His service. At His birth, it shouldn't have been merely a few wise men from the East and a few shepherds. All the earth should have come running in celebration to Him. King and pauper alike should have made the journey with all their gifts. That would have been a more appropriate welcome for the Lord Jesus. It should have been the single most exciting moment in the history of the world because it was in this child born in Bethlehem that every longing and every unmet desire, every sorrow was going to be fulfilled. Look at the end of verse 10. The world was made through him but the world did not know him. The word, the Lord Jesus came to the world and the world saw him as an unwelcome visitor, didn't they? Uh, some of you have company coming in the next few days and it might be fun for a day or two. After at the third day, they're like fish. They stink, don't they? Not really, but you know, start to take up space in the house and start to eat your food, and, and you start to wonder, are they, are they ever going to leave? That's really the language of how John describes Jesus coming into the world. Like Jesus was an unwelcome visitor, the world didn't receive him. They didn't welcome him in. Now, of course, as the creator, it was his to use. It was all his. He is welcome anywhere he wants, anytime. There are no no trespassing signs in the kingdom of Christ. It's all his. But the people didn't receive him. Just think about it was this way from his birth. Mary's about to give birth, and what do they hear? There's no room for her. There's a linguistic question. Was it an inn? Was it a home? We're not really sure, but uh, it doesn't really matter. Even a king's palace would have been best used for the birth of the Lord Jesus. And John says the world didn't know him. Everywhere Jesus went throughout his life, he should have received a king's welcome. He should have been adored by all people every second of his life. Every heart should have, as we sing this time of year, prepared him room. Yet the world didn't know him. Well, perhaps the world didn't know him, but what about his people? What what about the Jewish people? Surely they They knew him. Surely they received him. They had those thousands of years of prophecy. Look at verse 11. He came to his own. And really that Greek would be his own possession. That's the language of Israel being the chosen possession of God. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You know, if we ever needed proof of the wickedness of the human heart, it's this. Sometimes people will say, you know, if I just had more evidence than I would believe. The Jews had all the evidence, including Jesus himself, in front of them. And yet their hearts were so hard. And instead of receiving him, they crucified him. And instead of believing in him when he was resurrected, they colluded against him. His own didn't receive him. And as tragic as that is, isn't that true Today. How often do people go through life maybe knowing all of the right answers yet refusing to make any room for him? Instead, filling their hearts with all sorts of false and lesser gods. You know, that may be true of some of us in here. At times, it's probably true of all of us in here. We've heard the gospel perhaps since birth, but it's, is it pierced your heart? has your life become reoriented around the Lord Jesus? That's how you know if you've really heard the gospel, in the depths of your being, that it changes who you are and what you live for. I fear for, for many in the church today, and maybe some in this room, who, who know all the answers, but they have no desire to make room for the Lord Jesus in their hearts. He, he's an unwelcome visitor, they don't want to see His light because they're scared of, uh, that they won't be able to keep living in darkness. How often do people not follow Christ because they don't want to give up their idols? Uh, idols of control and idols of wealth and idols of, of, of pleasure and sex and food and drink, and they don't want to come to the Lord Jesus because they don't want to give any of it up. If that's the case for you, Dear friends, if you're here and that's where your heart is, you know all the right answers. I mean, you don't want to give your life to the Lord Jesus. I and mean, you just see him as, as an unwelcome visitor who threatens to, to unseat the idols of your heart and you, may, and you fear what it may cost you if he were to stick around. You have greatly misunderstood what the Lord Jesus came to do. He didn't come to steal your life. He came to bring you life. Now, it will cost you, it'll cost you your idols. It'll cost you your addictions. It'll cost you strings of broken relationships and and, and utter selfishness. And if you're going to cling to those things so that they are more important to you than the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus just continues to be an unwelcome visitor to you, you have no idea how much it will cost you if you continue to reject Him. Many are scared of what it will cost them if they receive him. It will cost you far more if you reject him because you will be under the wrath of God for all eternity. And I plead with you. I plead with you to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. I plead with you to lay down those idols at his feet and come to him as the true and living God. See, Jesus is a unique visitor. He comes not so much to take, but to give. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is really amazing language here that to all who receive the Lord Jesus, despite all that they have done and all that they have been and all the ways that they have lived in utter blindness and opposition to him, he gave the right to become children of God. This is absolutely unimaginable that God would receive people like us as sons and daughters. So he said, first, Jesus was the unseen light. Second, he's the unwelcome visitor. Third, he's the unimaginable gift of God to us. I told you we had to go through those first two points to make sense of the third. If you think, and if I think, that we are simply entitled to what verse 12 says, that yeah, sure, we're all children of God, then this passage is going to mean nothing to us. We're going to presume the grace of God. But if we understand how we've sinned against God daily in thought, word, and deed, and that our sins are rebellion against this God then verse 12 becomes absolutely astonishing and life-changing. He gave the right to become children of God. If we don't understand how dreadfully sinful we are, we cannot begin to comprehend how unimaginably loved we are in Christ Jesus. John's speaking here of what we call the doctrine of adoption. I will tell you, this is my favorite doctrine in all of Scripture, I think. You might say, for those who, who know me, well, of course you think that. You, you have adopted. You have an adopted child. Uh, no, we, we adopted because God first adopted us into his family, and it utterly transformed our lives. Let's go back for a second to those famous verses we read in Isaiah 9 a few minutes ago. We're told that those who walked in deep darkness have seen a great light, A lot of us don't pay a lot of attention to that next verse, but think about verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. I, I don't know if most Christians have ever experienced this kind of joy, rejoicing so much that even a full harvest, a full bank account, could not compare. But for the Christian being adopted into the family of God is a source of joy that nothing in this world can compare to. Let me share with you a few things that ought to overwhelm us with joy and change our lives because of God's adoption of us into His family. First, adoption happens solely by the grace of God. Again, verse 12, to all who did receive Him. Now, this is, this is speaking of the human side of it, what we would call conversion, turning away from a life of sin, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is something that happens after God has done His great work in our hearts. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, in terms of logic, really precedes verse 12. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you get that? I was born September 15, 1981. I did not look at the calendar sometime before that and say, I'm, I really like September. Seems like a great time to be born. That's, that just seems great. I'm going to plan towards that day. I was completely absent from that decision. Jesus is saying here to be born again, you are absent from that decision. It is God's sovereign grace that causes you to be born again. Because you know what? If it were up to you, it would never happen. But God does that work of regenerating us, of causing us to be born again by His mercy and grace. He did not look at you and say, You know what? I, I think I'll, I'll choose Noah. Noah's going to be a great guy. I want him on my team. There was nothing in Noah to cause him to be chosen. He didn't look at anybody in this room and say, You know, I, I can see what this person might be with a little bit of work. That'll be totally worth it. It was solely His sovereign grace that causes us to be born again. And John's saying here the way that an individual is adopted into the family of God is not by human choice, but by supernatural undeserved grace. It's a divine gift as a result of God's initiative that God does by His mercy for us and in us. Our response to the gospel is evidence of what God has already done in us, taking away those blind eyes, giving us eyes to see. We love because He first loved us. So that's the first thing. Adoption is solely the result of God's grace. Second, in adoption, we become true sons and daughters. Many of you are sincere Christians, but you really struggle with things you've done in the past, and maybe the things you've done in the past have been really bad things. Maybe they've, it's been drug abuse, addiction, sexual sin, abortion, adultery. We can probably in this room check off every box. Maybe it wasn't anything scandalous. Maybe it was a lifetime of being in church, going through the outward motions of morality, but never really repenting of your sins and trusting the Lord Jesus. But if you belong to Jesus now, none of those things define you. It may be in your history, but it doesn't write your story. God writes a new story when He brings you into the family. And so I want to speak particularly to those of you who I think think you are B-team Christians because of your past. You, 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 you got it all wrong for a long time. And so you think that you're on the bench. God, God can't really use you. You're not like some of these others that have gotten it right all the time. Well, nobody's gotten it right all the time. We're all B-team Christians, and none of us deserve to be used, do we? Jesus doesn't undo the past, but He takes the guilt of the past. And He gives you His title as Son, and He shares that with you. So, the thing that defines you is not your adultery, it's not your abuse, it's not your addiction, those things that are in the rearview mirror of your life? They are part of your history. They do not write your story. The thing that writes your story is, are you sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus? Uh, you know, Satan hates that, and he will often accuse you of your past and say, oh, it's, he brings these things up over and over again, and reminds you of them, you know what you can say to him? Satan, it is all true. Good old Rocky Top. (laughs) Satan, it's all true. I have sinned against my father in awful ways. I've sinned against my neighbor. I've sinned against my husband. I've sinned against my wife. Whatever it is, but God loves me anyways. He's adopted me into his family. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. Some of you in this room either were adopted or have adopted. I'm, I'm not sure if this is the case in every state, but in South Carolina, there's a beautiful illustration of adoption. In South Carolina, when you are adopted and you receive your new name, your new family name, you get a new birth certificate. And you know what's different about that birth certificate than say a biological child's birth certificate? Not a thing. There's not an asterisk next to your name that says, not really a real child. The adopted child is as much a true child as the biological child. South Carolina sees it that way. Much more so does God see it that way, that when He has adopted you into His family, when He looks upon you, He sees the righteousness of Christ upon you. He does not define you by your past. So we are true sons and daughters. Third, in adoption, we are being renewed in the image of our Heavenly Father. When a child's adopted into a new family, that child no longer has any obligation to his old family. He doesn't carry over the debts from his old family. He has no obligation to attend family reunions. He has no obligation to act like the old family did. He's part of a new family, and he starts to take on the likeness of that family. He he, he starts to act like his heavenly Father. Uh, Turn with me to another of John's writings, 1 John. If you're using the Bible in your row, this is on page 1022, chapter 3, 1 John 10, uh, excuse me, 1 John 3, 9 and 10. No one born of God, this is what we're talking about, being adopted in the family of God, makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now stop there, because some of you, I just lost you. Some of you are going to read it, you're going to say, well, there you have it, I'm not a real child of God because I still sin. That's not what John's talking about. In fact, in another place, John says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. It's not as if we become Christians and suddenly we're sinless. But as Christians, we are being renewed into the image of our Heavenly Father. He who began a good work and you will carry it to completion. Now, it doesn't happen as fast as we'd like it to. Sometimes it can be very frustrating that we haven't made more progress in the Christian life. But look at verse 10, by this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you are Christians, you've been taken out of the old family, you've been taken away from slavery to sin, you've been made sons and daughters. I want you to understand this, you have no obligation to sin. Christ has broken the mastery of sin in your life, and sometimes If if we've struggled with certain temptations, sometimes we can just start to give in. We assume it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to lose this battle. It may be a battle with addiction. It may be a battle with people-pleasing, whatever it is. Sometimes we quit fighting because we think it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to lose. But we need to understand that it is God who works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so as you seek to be more like Christ, you can rest assured that God is seeking even more to make you like himself. And so, he's working in you to renew his image in you. And fourth, you have a right to the full inheritance. Look at Romans 8 for a moment. Pastor's sure making us look at the Bible a lot today, isn't he? It ain't gonna hurt you. Romans 8, starting at verse 14 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And listen to this. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Some of you have gotten an inheritance before. Some of you probably it was a small inheritance. Others of you may have received huge inheritances, but none of us has ever received the type of inheritance this is talking about. We are heirs of heaven. It's all ours because we belong to Jesus. Don't you see how foolish it is when we cling to the empty, fleeting things of this world that thieves can steal, that moth and rust can destroy? Don't you see how, for the Christian, our true reality isn't 80, 90 years of eating and drinking and being merry? And that's it. Our, Our true reality is that we are heirs of heaven where we will be forever and ever and ever. And these 80, 90, 100 years on this earth are but a mist and a vapor compared with eternity there. And so we're utter fools when we live for this world rather than the world to come. This is the glorious uh, doctrine of adoption that we're taken out of a family into which we we were sold into sin. We've had all our obligations canceled. We've been brought into the family of God. We're being made to look like our heavenly father. He's living in us through the Holy Spirit and we're given a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. I think some of us need to realize this doesn't happen just by growing up in the church. Are, are Are you going to heaven? Yeah, I've been in church all my life. There are a lot of people who have been in church all their life that are going to hell. They've never believed in the Lord Jesus. They've never received him. I don't mean to sound sentimental, but too many of us are like the innkeeper in the gospel. Sorry, Jesus, there's just no room here. My life's already so full with my ambitions and my plans and my work and my children. I really don't want you butting into it. I'm afraid you'll just get in the way. What fools we can be, spending all our time chasing after these things, which might be good gifts, but we pass up this unimaginably great gift that we could be called sons and daughters of God. One of the saddest trends I've heard about recently is the trend of seeking designer children. Maybe you heard this. It's when people, perhaps because of uh, various things, infertility and others, are seeking to adopt, but they're extremely selective about it. They want to see pictures of the parents. Are the parents attractive? I'd love a blue-eyed, blonde-haired kid. Are they athletic? Maybe we could get a tall one that'll play basketball one day. And they want to make the adoptive child as desirable as possible. Aren't you thankful God isn't that way? Jesus came for the poor, the sinful, and the unworthy, didn't he? He didn't come for those who are worthy because there would be none. He came to make us worthy by His grace, make us fit for heaven, and He alone can do that through His imputed righteousness. And so, come to Him, all who are poor. He was born in a stable, cradled in a manger. He understands what it is to be poor. Come to Him who have stained your garments with sin. Those shepherds that evening when the angels came to them, they had their unwashed clothes probably covered in blood and excrement, and they came. And dear ones, won't you do the same? Come to him who have made a mess of this life, who cannot do it on your own, who are filled with shame. Come to the Savior. Not only will he receive you, but he gives you the right to become children of God. A couple of applications. First, this is very simple. John the Baptist's mission in life was to be a witness. So is yours. That is your main purpose in life, is to be a witness, simply to tell people what you have seen, what has happened, what God has done in the gospel. You don't need to go to seminary, you don't need training for how to do this, you simply need to have experienced the power of the gospel in your own life and declare it to everyone else. John was a witness, you are to be too. Second, I know there are some in here who struggle with the fatherhood of God because you've had difficult fathers? I can't fix that, uh, but I want you to know this. God has none of the limitations of your earthly father. He has none of the weaknesses, none of the hang-ups of your earthly father. Do you think there's a huge gap between the bad father you had and the good father you wish you had? Compared to how much better God is than even the best of earthly fathers, it makes that difference very, very small. Don't ever limit your understanding of the fatherhood of God to the experience of your own father, no matter how good or bad he was. Rather take heart that God, our heavenly father, has none of the sins of earthly fathers. You cannot imagine, dear Christian, you cannot imagine how much your perfect heavenly Father loves you. Let's pray together. Lord, we cannot fathom all that this passage represents. This is a sermon that'll preach and preach and preach because this passage is so full of life to us. Father, I pray that you would soften hard hearts, And for those of us who are simply too preoccupied, too busy. And we sense that the Lord Jesus would just get in the way. And of course, the irony is that Christmas time is often the busiest time of the season. So even for Christians, we can be so busy that we do not simply sit and worship at the feet of of Christ. Father, forgive us and draw all of us close to yourself that we might understand the grace of adoption and the glory of our sonship in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would not only do that work in us, but do it with great power, transforming us more and more to the image